Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we are talking about the Extinction Rebellion. This is a new movement that's gathering and heading up steam to stave off the Anthropocene extinction and what this involves and what's happening with this group that is uh, getting a big name for itself is going to be the focus of today's episode. And I'm graced with the presence of uh, Rupert Reed is going to be with us. And Rupert is a reader of philosophy at the University of East Anglia, chair of the UK-based think tank Greenhouse, and a former Green Party of England and Wales councillor, spokesperson, European parliamentary candidate, and national parliamentary candidate as well. Hello, Rupert. Hello there. Oh, boy. Um, I'm really glad you're here. Where are you calling us from? Well, I live in Norwich, in the heart of East Anglia, but I'm actually calling you from Cambridge, where I've just launched my new book on uh, film and philosophy and ecology. Congratulations. Thank I'm sitting you. here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I don't see you outside <laughs> here, but... I right. Our other guest is um, Dr. Allison Green, is a UK cognitive psychologist in the area of human learning and skill acquisition. Allison is the former pro-vice-chancellor at Arden University. Okay, Allison. Uh, Allison and I are working together on a number of projects, so, but i got to ask you for the public, why former? Hi, everyone. Um, former because I took a fairly, well, fairly, a, a very large decision a couple of months ago to resign from my post and swap academia for full-time activism. Yeah, it's just remarkable. Um, you know, because I, I look at your, your resume and you've been doing all these steps, getting higher and higher and doing more and more in academia, and then you just stepped away. Why? Yeah, I, I guess I had a kind of epiphany a couple of years ago, and I got to a point in my career where suddenly I realized that actually the career didn't didn't really matter, and what really mattered to me was putting myself into something that I actually believe in, and something that enabled me to maintain my integrity, and and so, I, you know, I, want, I wanted to leave the system, basically, I wanted to extricate myself from the, the current economic system as best I could um, and do something that I can believe in. And so what did you come up with to do? What did I come up to do? <laughs> well, I've beca- I became involved with um, Extinction Rebellion, which began its life formally um, late last year, although the ideas had been in development with the two, well, with the key, the key founders of the group for, for quite some time. So that's Roger Hallam Gail Bradbrook, I think, are the two people that were most closely associated with Extinction Rebellion. Um, and they, they, these guys really motivated and inspired me and l- led me to want to work with them and to bring about social change. Yes, exactly. And so that's why 
you're featured on this show to talk about the Extinction Rebellion. We're really glad to have you, Allison. I also want to introduce um, Isabel Ronowski. Did I do okay there, Isabel? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isabel just graduated last month from Wellesley College, and she's uh, in here working as one of our spring semester interns. Hello, Isabel. And uh, Hunter Lambert is at Boston University. Hi, Hunter. Hello, everyone. And Hunter uh, comes to us from the other side of Boston, and I want to tip my hat for you making it to work on Tuesday when there was a Patriots parade going down the middle of Harvard, uh, not Harvard, but in Boston. Oh, yeah. You had a bit of traffic then? No, yeah, it, it was insane. I got here a little bit late. It's always nice being in a, a big college city until a big sports city until inconvenience is you. I know, such an inconvenience having the Patriots win, you know, that would have been... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, welcome, Hunter. Allison, um, I kind of cut you off, and you were telling us about how um, the Extinction Rebellion came to be, and, um, yeah. yeah, that's kind of, you know, tell us about the roots. Okay, so... It started some time ago, I think, with um, with Gail primarily, who had been an activist and who had been trying to facilitate and encourage mass civil disobedience. Um, and then last year, things seemed to gel. And so in October, on October 31st last year, there was a declaration in London. And this was then followed by a number of, um, act, um, a number of events in London um, the movement is unusual in that it's grown remarkably quickly, um, and I'll say a little bit about that that later, hopefully. Um, but it has at its core some principles that I think most I think will resonate really with with a lot of people, and they're things like telling the truth about climate and the ecological emergency. Um, you know, and I think most people can identify with that because you know the truth is is absolutely fundamental you know what is wrong with telling the truth um a second requirement is that is that the government enacts legally binding policy measures and then a third one is that we bring about a citizens assembly to oversee changes as part of a sort of creating a democracy and those are the three core principles that i i think have really um, sparked the imagination of a lot of people from, from academics to to young people to grandparents. They're the kinds of things that people can really buy into and really believe in. Can I just yeah. add that on the second, well, uh, on the second demand, uh, the demand for legally binding, binding policy measures, it's worth letting viewers know that the, the precise demand in the UK context, and I think it would be similar in the US context, is for this country to go carbon net zero by 2025, which is an incredibly bold demand. It looks completely unrealistic according to the rules of the political system as we know it. It requires everything to be changed in a short space of time. But that is actually what we need. And this is, this is one of my favorite demands that, that we in Extinction Rebellion are making. We're saying, yes, everything has to change. And that's why, really fast, and that's why we need to do really radical things to get there. It's not going to happen if we just stick to the conventional political process. It's not going to happen if we just stick to trying to vote for the best candidates at elections. That can help, but it isn't going to get us to zero carbon by 2025. 
So I think that demand of the Extinction Rebellion really concentrates the mind and really shows why we need to be engaging in mass civil disobedience. Yes, but you are, I'm glad to see that you are quite clear about what kind of strategies to get there in terms of, you're not saying that the end justifies any means. You have, you have some discipline in how you approach yeah. things, right? Absolutely. Which are... Is, uh, no. Non-violence is completely central to the movement. And as Alison just said, also, we want democracy. We want real democracy. We're, we're saying that representative democracy as we know it has failed. So let's have some citizens' democracy. Let's have some sortition is the technical term for it. It's like what you do with a jury. A jury is selected at random from members of the public. We should have a citizens' assembly like that where people are selected at random to represent us all, as a jury does. And then they're given some help and some education and some information and facilitated in deliberating about what we should do. And frankly, they couldn't do any worse than the current bunches of politicians we've got in our, in our countries. So let's give that kind of radical version of democracy, let's give that kind of idea a chance. So that means you have to be open to diverse approaches to getting there. You're not just all walking steps in the same you know, kind of together, I mean, that, you know, you, you, you're trying to be a big tent, right, and involve different views and stuff? Yeah, and you're trying to open to, to new and radical uh, possibilities. Uh, of course, a lot of what we do is going to have to be done by really, really working together more closely together than we ever have done before. But we have to do that. We have to want to do that. We have to do it more or less voluntarily. That's what real democracy means, and that's part of what Extinction Rebellion wants to facilitate, real democracy and, uh, and non-violent rule of the people, by the people, for the people. Yeah, and, and that's what I like about what Extinction Rebellion has already done, is that you already are, if one group wants to do something one way, they do it whatever the, you know, the, we used to say, think globally, act locally, and sometimes we were really locally stupid. So it's really important to listen to local voices, and you guys and we're going to get into that, about how you're really receptive to letting people express it in a local way. Because that, nothing influences local decision makers better than someone who sounds like their mother or you know, takes the approach that really catches their attention. Um, Allison, um, oh, over to you, Isabel. I'm going to have a question for you. Yeah, so, um, Allison, you mentioned earlier that there were some events organized in London. Can you tell us yeah. a bit about the... The first big action taken there as part of um, the Extinction Rebellion mission and movement. Yeah, sure. So, um, and for me, this was a first too. So I participated in the, what we're calling the, the Bridges event. And this took place on November 17th in London. And, you know, this was a big ambition. So the, the plan was that people would, would descend upon London and we would arrange ourselves on five bridges simultaneously and then when a signal was was given we would then just swarm into the roads and we would just stop we would simply stop the traffic and you know for a lot of people there you know I was there on the day on Waterloo Bridge I know Rupert was there too um you know being there and actually talking with the people and about why they were there and their motivations and what mattered to them was, you know, was was really quite an incredible experience. Um, you know, the UK hasn't seen this kind of action, this kind of um, commitment from from normal people to simply congregate and to actually take action, non-violent action, in this particular way. We haven't we haven't seen this kind of thing in 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 a long long time. 
Um, so it was quite an experience, I have to say, you know, to, to actually just be there and then to look across the Thames, across to the other bridges. And, you know, the, the atmosphere was quite euphoric in a way, which sort of seems somehow not quite appropriate for an event that was a very serious event. I mean, these, these were people who are passionate, absolutely passionate about what's happening in in the UK and across the across the globe and who are saying you know we we've had enough we are going to rise up and we are going to make ourselves heard and it was it was a very empowering experience um from from my perspective I'm mean, Rupert I know you were there um, perhaps you want to say yeah. something too yeah well my experience was very similar I was on Lambeth Bridge uh, and I was helping to try to sort of organize the taking of the bridge the atmosphere before we tried to go into the road. Frankly, it was pretty nervous. Uh, I was really quite uncertain that it was going to work out. Uh, and then Roger Hallam, who was on Lambeth Bridge with me and one or two of the others, started walking uh, out into the road. He just started strolling into the road and then we all started following. And we just found how incredibly easy it was for hundreds of us to occupy this bridge and stop the, stop the traffic, bring central London to uh, a standstill, reduce economic activity and how the police couldn't really stop us because there were so many of us. And as you say, Alison, part of the atmosphere was as a result of this euphoria. It's like, wow, we can do it. 6,000 people took nonviolent civil disobedience and occupied the bridges of central London. Uh, and if we've done that once, well, we can do it again and we can do it again on an even larger scale. And that is indeed what we're planning to do in April. That's really commendable, 6,000 people and you essentially waited for the lights to change and then walk out onto the, onto the yep. road and just get yep. in there and you managed to close six bridges in London. Five bridges, yes, but yeah, still pretty good. <laughs> How many? Five. Yeah. Oh, five. Yeah. Um, and if, if, yeah, and I recommend people go to your website, uh, which is, uh, what's the website? Rebellionearth.com. Right, just rebellion. Rebellion Earth. Yeah, rebellion no. Earth. Rebellion.earth. No, no, no dot. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, but it, 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 if you want to follow along with what um, Allison and Rupert are talking about, it's a great site to visit. Um, yeah. And then uh, I guess the question is back to me now. Uh, we're going to move on to... Um, Oh, Allison, you had an event that involved a during a coffin. That yeah, so, so it did. So November seventeenth was really a, a very symbolic event. It was about expressing feelings, expressing anger. Um, the following event the on closing. November twenty fourth in Parliament Square was really it was a grieving event. It was where people came together to talk about their feelings, to talk about how we feel about you know the loss of the Arctic sea ice, the loss of so many species, and to talk about how we feel about the, oh, you, you know, it's it's tragic to how we feel about the um, for, forthcoming loss of even more species. Um, and Skeena Rathor has been, so in, in many ways, you know, the heart and soul of, of Extinction Rebellion, and she talked very passionately and emotionally about how one of the hardest things she'd had to do was explain to her teenage daughter that she might not have the longevity that, that she would wish for. And and hearing these impassioned 
speeches from various people. Rupert spoke too. It was incredibly moving. Um, and it culminated in the, well, there was a march and there was also a symbolic burial of a coffin. Um, and the, these kinds of, of actions where people talk about, you know, about feelings, where there's a deep kind of spiritual core to the movement. This is this is incredibly unusual. This, this hasn't really been seen mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think this is a unique dimension of Extinction Rebellion, that we're allowing people, we're giving people a space which is so needed for the expression of feelings of, of grief uh, and, and loss and terror. And these things have been suppressed in the environmental movement far too often. The environmental movement for far too long has said things like, oh, we have to be optimistic. We always have to give people something positive to look towards. And it means that we've been very inauthentic often in the environmental movement. The Extinction Rebellion is blowing through all of that. We're saying, stuff that. Let's be honest. It's time to tell the truth, uh, which is the demand we're also making, as Alison said, of the government. So we might, we'd better do it ourselves. It's time to tell the truth about our fears. It's time to tell the truth about our feelings. It's time to tell the truth about what we want. And what we actually find is that liberates people and empowers people to become much uh, stronger and much less fearful. And it leads people, for example, to make the extraordinary, brilliant decision that Alison has made, uh, which has really made me think, I must tell you, of, uh, of chucking in this uh, amazing job that she has so that she can try to do the right thing for the, for the future of the planet. Um, it's a liberation that's, uh, that's uh, going along with this kind of uh, authenticity and this facing of the reality of what we've done. You know, the horrendous fact that during my lifetime we have exterminated half of wildlife on Earth. Mind-blowing, terrible fact. If you don't feel really sad when you hear that statistic, there's something wrong with you. So there has to be a place in our movement for that sadness. And in Extinction Rebellion, there definitely has been. And November the 24th, as Alison says, was a superb expression of that. It's called Rebellion Day 2, if people want to look it up on the internet. Mm. I'm tempted to call for a moment of silence, but instead we have to take a break. And we'll be right back in about two minutes to talk some more with Rupert uh, and Alison about Extinction Rebellion. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. We're talking... We, being Hunter, Isabel, and I, are talking about the Extinction Rebellion with Rupert Reed and Alison Green, who are calling in from the UK. And Rupert, uh, what's the website for people to follow, learn more about Extinction Rebellion? Yes, I got the website slightly wrong earlier. Apologies. The correct website address is simply rebellion.earth. I recommend it highly. Uh, it's just remarkable what you're doing. And um, I think, Hunter, we got a question. Definitely. Uh, I know we touched on uh, some events earlier regarding the bridge blocking and symbolic burial of coffin. Um, but we also hit on the idea of doing things at a local level. Do you guys want to talk about what Extinction Rebellion is doing with local communities? Sure. Yeah, so- um, I, I'm happy to start with that. Um, you start, Alison. So lo- locally... You sure? Sorry. Um, so, lo- yeah, there, there are. I, I think it must be around about two hundred now. Um, Extinction Rebellion um, groups um, around the UK and uh, you know globally, it's 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 spreading really really quickly too. Um, just to give you an example, in Cambridge, which is where I also happen to be, um, we had an event just before Christmas, which was really quite remarkable. Two hundred two hundred people just congregated in town. And we marched through town and we did a number of, of actions. Again, these are all nonviolent actions, very symbolic, very moving. Um, we staged a die-in in a large shopping arcade, which is really, really quite quite something to just sort of lie down on the ground in a in a you know in a large shopping arcade. People haven't seen that kind of thing before, certainly not around here. Um, and then in the market square we had a number of people, including myself just talking, just talking to people, not just to the people who were part of the 
the action that day. But but talking to members of the public too, and and trying to say to people, you know, what's happening is isn't acceptable. You know, we we have to we have to stand together. We have to rise up. We have to take action. We have to make some very simple, basic demands that, that that aren't contentious. Asking governments to tell the truth, you know, it's it's not what they're used to doing, but it's it's what we should be doing. Um, so we had we had the action in Cambridge. We had another one recently where we staged a um, a bike ride. I mean, Cambridge is Cycle City, and this was a bike ride un, un, unlike any other in that we were actually going. I wasn't part. I wasn't part of that one on that occasion. Um, uh, people were cycling very, very, very slowly through town. Um, what I like about these regional events is that they have their own regional identity. People are doing things that are kind of appropriate for their their city or where they happen to be. Um, people are being creative. People are thinking about what they can do and how they can make a difference. And, you know, I think, it, you know, I've used the word empowering before already, but it is, it's incredibly empowering for people to feel that they can do something and then to see that they're making a real difference. Yeah. So I add to that my perspective from Norwich, which is uh, yeah. which is very much in line with what Alison's saying. It's important to understand that Extinction Rebellion is quite a decentralist organization. So local groups, local affinity groups and local groups generally have a, a, a strong right to do whatever they want, provided they stay within the overall frame of the principles of Extinction Rebellion and uh, especially the the fundamental method of nonviolence. So where I live in Norwich, we've been very active. We occupied and blocked a exhibition where the local council were trying to promote a horrible new climate dangerous road that they want to build. Uh, we nonviolently protested there and effectively blocked this exhibition from happening. We've also been um, working hard to try to persuade our local councils to declare a climate emergency which is happening as a result of Extinction Rebellion in more and more places around the, around Britain and, in fact, around the world. And on this coming Monday, we're going to um, have a, a mass nonviolent civil disobedience at our uh, local council. So uh, watch this space for that exciting event coming up in, uh, in Norfolk. Um, these local events are happening all over the place, as Alison says, more and more of them. Uh, and then there are also going to be the big national and indeed international events, um, with the key one being on uh, April the 15th, which everyone is working towards. Yes. Um, right. We'll come back to the April event uh, later in the show when we're urging people to uh, join with, you know, sign up for your website and stuff because we want to get people involved with that. Um, but uh, before then, I want to talk a bit about, you know, how you guys are working the media to get the word out. Um, Allison, uh, there was a letter from academics that you mm-hmm. could maybe start us off on, and then uh, Rupert could comment on that as well. Yeah. So I mean, what's been one of the things that I think has been hugely effective in terms of getting getting Extinction Rebellion um, on the radar and, having, and, and bringing awareness to it was the initial letter that Rupert, Richard House, and I composed. And... You know, and we we composed the letter, and it's a, it's a, if you look at it, it's on the Guardian website. Um, it's very visceral, you know, because we we are all the three of us incredibly passionate about what's happening and what's not happening, and and just how important it is that you know that that that, that action is taken. And so, 
being academics, you know, we thought, well, I could, you know, academics need to have a voice. You know, the the, the public trust, um, they trust academics, they tend to trust experts. Um, so we reached out to our academic networks um, across a huge number of different disciplines. So we weren't reaching out simply to climate scientists. We were reaching out to people from the arts and the humanities, science, sciences, and theology, philosophy, you know, a huge, a broad, a broad church. Um, and it was, it was remarkable because, you know, people would, 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 you know, willingly sign up, many of them saying, fantastic, you know, we really support what you're doing. It's about time. We've needed this. And that letter was really a turning point for Extinction Rebellion. Um, it was, it was cathartic. It's proven to be a catalyst. It's had that 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 letter has had some sixteen thousand downloads, I think, from from the Guardian. Which is, you know, if you think of it, this is it, it in in one sense, it's just a letter. In another sense, it marked, I think, it marked a point at which academics were saying we are no longer sitting on the fence. You know, we are standing up and we're going to make our voices heard. Um, and that was, you know, that was a, as I said, it was a turning point. It was hugely significant. Yeah, I think that's right. And we then followed that up with a second letter in December, which was uh, an international letter, that, which was again headed up by um, Alison and Richard House and myself. Uh, and this uh, international letter had a lot of signatories that uh, your listeners will recognize. People like uh, Vardana Shiva, Naomi Klein, uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, Philip Pullman, Bill McKibben, Jonathan Porritt, Lily Cole, Chris Packham, a real uh, retinue of, uh, of international stars of the Green Movement and of broadcasting and of media and of dissent. Uh, and what this international letter did was follow on the initial, initial letter and say, look, this obviously is, uh, is something of concern to us around the world and around the world. We need organizations, we need movements like Extinction Rebellion to be taking off in a big way if we are to have a future. It really is as simple and as blunt uh, as that. Uh, and we're, we're delighted that these letters seem to have had this kind of um, involving and uh, catalyzing effect upon people. Uh, and that's part of the reason, I think, why we are seeing this extraordinary international development of Extinction Rebellion. I think officially now there are groups in uh, 127 countries, which is really quite uh, incredible. Um, and what we're hoping, among other things, is that in the US, Extinction Rebellion is really going to uh, grow and take off in the next few uh, months uh, and hopefully rise to the kind of level that it's already risen to in Britain. Yes, I see signs of that happening here from my Boston perspective. Um, you guys have really set a great trend. Uh, there was uh, a letter with the BBC in London. Um, I think you might be referring there to the, the letter that I coordinated, which uh, happened uh, a month or two earlier, uh, where we, uh, a bunch of us, um, got together to, to lobby the BBC to essentially say that it's completely inappropriate for them to have a so-called balanced debate between um, climate scientists and so-called climate skeptics, i.e. climate change deniers. Uh, and the BBC then changed their policy, and the BBC have actually gone, moved in the right direction here. And the BBC now say they will no longer feature these kind of climate change deniers uh, as balance. And this obviously is a real step forward. And obviously, that's something which you badly need in America, but it's much more difficult for you in America when you have the unfortunate position that your so-called uh, president is himself 
uh, one of those completely absurd uh, deniers. But hopefully before too long, um, the U.S. will be catching up with us on that uh, and following the practice of the BBC, which, as I say now, is to not feature climate change deniers anymore. The BBC has accepted the reality of, uh, of climate change, human anthropogenic, deadly climate change. And this is a, a significant step forward. Yes, we had a significant step in Washington on, just, just two days ago uh, when now that the Democrats control the House of Representatives, the uh, House Committee on Natural Resources could uh, recognize climate change and had Massachusetts Republican governor, one of the most popular governors in the country, go to Washington and explain how we must address climate change. So the, mm. the chairman of that committee was wise enough not to have a Democrat telling Republicans why they should do this, but to have the Republican governor and a Republican uh, representative from Florida, South Florida, to talk about, hey, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, yes, we've got a bumpkin at the top, and fortunately, um, you know, the Democrats have taken back the House, and that gives us a crowbar into uh, doing these kind of legislation things. The media will do yeah. whatever you tell them. We've got all kinds of media, but uh, yes, so um, that's a very hopeful sign. Um, Good. Yeah. So uh, let's um, t- let's kick back a bit, and Rupert, tell us about kind of the philosophical underpinnings of of this whole kind of these kind of endeavors of trying to repair nature and how complicated it all is, and um, you know how everything's interconnected, and we have to be careful, but that we don't pull threads too strongly. Yeah. But on the other hand, we got yeah, take it away. <laughs> well, there's so much to say here, but let me just mention a couple of key things. Firstly, as we've already implied, and this is a very important point, the Extinction Rebellion is not just about dangerous man-made climate change. It's not just about climate breakdown. It's about the wider ecological crisis of which climate breakdown is simply the biggest and most immediately existentially threatening symptom for us, for humans. But we have to remember that actually the extinction crisis and the biodiversity crisis are hitting already the planet unbelievably hard and rendering other species extinct at an almost unprecedented rate. And, and this is all down to us and mostly not down to climate, actually. It's mostly down to uh, habitat uh, destruction uh, and uh, sheer human numbers and level of human consumption and production and pollution more generally. Extinction Rebellion is concerned about the possible extinction of the human race and the actual extinction of other beings across our planet. And we want absolutely to stop both of these things. That's the first point. The second point is that part of what is needed in order for us to make this kind of massive shift, this shift in our practices and shift in our mindset, is for us to move to what's called a more precautionary uh, approach, which is what is really called for by proper science and certainly by Uh, proper philosophy and proper ethics. And what precaution says is you shouldn't have to wait until all the evidence is in about something terrible that we're doing before you move to act on it. The demand to have full evidence, full proof that things are just as terrible as we say they are, as we claim they are, is actually a demand for prevarication. It's actually an excuse for inaction. We need to act ahead of certainty to protect things which are at terrible risk of being destroyed while we try to wait to accumulate the evidence that goes to make up that certainty. And that kind of action on the basis of probabilities, on the basis of our exposure to risk, 
rather than on the basis of absolute certainty. That is precaution. That is what's known as the precautionary principle. And that precautionary principle is a key part of the motivation for Extinction Rebellion. It needs to be a key part of the way we, th we rethink what we're doing across the whole piece here. Uh, and so for that reason, for example, in our first letter, the academics letter that Alison mentioned, we highlighted the precautionary principle and said, if we really operated on the basis of precaution, if we stopped being so reckless with our common future, well, then we actually would have a chance of reining in the destruction that we're reigning at present in time. Absolutely. And it's really, you know, as you said, it's a, it's a, it's a philosophy of life, you know. If you yeah. don't want to eat it, throw it away. Just don't pollute. You don't need a reason why not to, but it's just this sense of entitlement that you guys are overcoming. It's just remarkable the, the way you're, you're working that. And, you know, one of our problems is that the scientists will go to the decision maker and say, you got to do it for this reason. And the decision maker says, well, I'm not convinced. I need some more research on this. And the scientists yeah, yeah. go, oh, I can do that. Off they go again. But when the people that are being brought to rally by the Extinction Rebellion are common citizens. And they're talking common sense to their legislators, and yeah. that's what they're there. They're to for, they're to serve their constituents. So, rather than a person asking your legislator, "Do you believe in climate change?" you have Mrs. McGillicuddy writing the representative saying, "I'm really upset. My crocuses came up three weeks early. What are you doing about it?" And yeah, you start getting action moving forward between your groups. This is really good. Yeah, you've got it in one. That's exactly exactly the way we need to be thinking now. On that note, we've got to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we'll be more explicit about how you can get engaged and really make a difference for not just addressing the climate change problem, but the loss of biodiversity, overpollution, uh, all, all this whole web of life that's all tied together. So we'll be right back after this break. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking to... Uh, Rupert Reed and Allison Green about the Extinction Rebellion. And, um, you know, we're talking about human survival and the survival of survival societies as we know them, you know, civil societies uh, with so many things. That the ecosystem that we depend on is unraveling in so many ways. And so it's been good to um, hear about how the climate, uh, how Extinction Rebellion is really um, being a big tent and letting the different elements of that problem come forward from people to decision makers. And one aspect of that is known as deep adaptation. Allison Green, can you tell us a bit about deep adaptation? This is, you know, what, what, what happens next? What happens when people wake up? And I had a, a conversation with, um, with Guy Lane in Australia about this earlier today. Um, and one person in the UK who has really very bravely looked at this and, and has looked at this in a very honest way is Jem Bendel. And Jem is a professor of sustainability at Cumbria. Um, and and he, he wrote a paper um, exploring the, the what if. What if, what if there is a, a collapse of civilization? You know, what if the worst case scenarios prevail? And, and what's very interesting is that the the paper was was declined. It was the the, the journal refused to publish it because they found it uh, too scary, and there were some what they call ethical considerations and problems. And and so Jem put it on his own WordPress site. Um, now that paper has had something like one hundred thousand downloads, and any academic would give their eye teeth for for a result like that. So in a sense, yeah, the the journal declining it has sort of in a sense backfired because it's really. You know, Gem, Gem's work has really captured the the imagination, but people are really in get, starting to engage with that. And so in talking about the what-ifs, he talks about, well, wh- how, how do we need to adapt? 
you know, how can we derive meaning from our lives if we are faced with um, a possible situation, a possible future, which is very, very bleak? So normally in situations where you talk about um, about change and about um, moving forwards, there's, there's a vision and it's often held to be a positive vision that people can buy into. With the current situation that we're in, there isn't really anything like that. There is not really a positive vision that people can buy into. So how do people make sense of their lives in the interim? How do we derive meaning from our lives? And these are the kinds of questions that, that Jem is addressing, you know, as I said, very courageously. Um, and Rupert, I know, is is also thinking about this and, and writing on this for us, um, for a, a piece that may come out um, at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah. So you're referring there to our book that's going to appear with Penguin, I believe, Alison. Which is very <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, let's, uh, I think we can start to advertise that now. We're going to have an Extinction Rebellion book uh, with, uh, with Penguin. Um, yeah, so I've been working on this also for some time. Um, Gem and I are going to do an edited book together uh, on all of this. Um, and as Alison says, it, it, we can't not think about this now because it's too late to assume that we're going to be able to successfully do the climate mitigation that we would need to do in order to stop this society from collapsing at the speed we need to do it. Like I said earlier in our conversation, we need to do something like reduce to carbon zero in countries like Britain and the US by 2025. Now, that's what Extinction Rebellion is aiming for, and hopefully we're going to achieve it. But it's going to be a very brave person who's going to bet their all on us achieving it. If we do achieve it, it will be an astonishing, heroic, unprecedented victory and turnaround in the history of humanity, virtually. It will be more remarkable than the achievements made by the civil rights movement or the suffragist uh, movement and quicker than those achievements. And what that means is we have to have an insurance policy and deep adaptation is the ultimate insurance policy. Deep adaptation means that we have to say, what if this society were to really collapse? What kinds of things would we need to do to prepare ourselves for that? And the answer, to some extent, it's obvious. It's things like we need to learn to grow our own food better. Then it's slightly less obvious things, such as we need to find some way of starting to take care now of the huge mountains of nuclear waste uh, that uh, pepper our societies. Because if industrial society as we know it starts to collapse, we can't guarantee anymore that those nuclear waste dumps will be properly managed. We can't guarantee that spent fuel rods in cooling ponds will be kept in those cooling ponds. And if you don't keep spent fuel rods from nuclear power stations in cooling ponds, then quite quickly the ponds go dry and then the spent fuel rods spontaneously catch fire and then they would burn toxically into the atmosphere for decades or centuries. Imagine us bequeathing that as a kind of legacy to our children in a, a possible collapsing future society. We have to think now about how to protect ourselves against that kind of possible eventuality. We are no longer able to guarantee that our society isn't going to collapse. So this is, the, this is what goes along with being willing to be serious about loss and being able to look at our grief and being able to take seriously our fear, what in my think tank greenhouse we call facing up to climate reality. We need to have deep adaptation as the ultimate insurance policy, and we need to also have what in my think tank we call transformative adaptation, which is a kind of intermediate thing, which means we do things like um, 
create uh, better seed banks and look after them well. Um, we create better flood defenses, not necessarily by building ever higher seawalls and dikes, but by doing things like restoring natural wetlands. We adapt to the coming changes, the definite changes that are coming in the sense of our climate is definitely going to get worse for some time to come because of the time lags built into the system. We adapt in ways that are actually transformative, that simultaneously mitigate and that transform, start to transform our societies in the direction we need to transform in any way if we're going to have a flourishing future. So transformative adaptation and then the ultimate insurance policy, policy of deep adaptation. This is part of what Extinction Rebellion is about. It's a real change of orientation from the traditional climate movement, putting all its eggs in the basket of carbon emissions reductions, so-called mitigation. Uh, I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about uh, transformative adaptation and deep adaptation. Yes. yes. Thank you for bringing that perspective in, because we can't just be like a bunch of people on a boat and all go running to one railing and then all go running to the other railing. We've got to, you know, deal with all the problems all the time. I hate it when people ask me, what's the number one problem with, say, I do a lot of ocean conservation work. What's the number one problem with saving the ocean? And it's like, listen, I got five kids, and I can't tell you which kid I like the best. We just have to do <laughs> yeah. everything. There's no excuse for trashing the earth. I mean, just get with the program, guys. And also, you know, living with so much luxury and stuff. So this is really good what you're doing. I'm talking fast here because I know you have to leave in three minutes, um, Rupert. So um, I want you to have a chance to talk about... Uh, this international rebellion that's uh, at a global scale that we're working for now in the future. Yeah, so my, my final remark for this conversation on that would be this is the number one thing to prepare for. This is the number one thing to put in your diary. I know we don't believe in number one things, but if there were a number one thing, this would be this it. Is a, no, it's a calendar <laughs> thing. This is right, yeah. <laughs> This is practical. This is, uh, this is April the 15th, the International Rebellion Day. And I hope that listeners, wherever they are in the world, will be planning to do something on that day. Take the day off work. Better still take the week off work. In Britain, we're planning that this is going to be the start of the Extinction Rebellion proper. We mean this, this name, Extinction Rebellion, quite literally. It's supposed to be a rebellion against our possible extinction and the extinction of our other than animal kin, uh, other than human kin. Um, uh, it's supposed to be a rebellion, a non-violent rebellion, a non-violent uprising against the government. We want on April the 15th in this country to have 15,000, 20,000, 30,000 people out on the streets, not just in a normal protest, but doing non-violent civil disobedience. Uh, what exactly that civil disobedience will be, you'll have to wait for that news to closer to the time. Uh, we don't necessarily want to broadcast that right now, but what we do want to do is tell, say to everybody, please, do what you can on April the 15th. Put that date in your diary now and let that be the start of something special, wherever you are in the world. Yes, and go to the webpage, rebellion.earth, and you'll find there a map of the globe, and you can see who is acting in your part of the nation or, or globe there. Um, and I, I assume that you guys have ways to help people connect who are local and stuff, because it's it's really exciting. You've got um, little pins all around the globe, and uh, I'm sure that local groups will come up with the best kind of civil disobedience. But this has been really exciting. Uh, Rupert, thank you for taking time away from all your other stuff to uh, tell us about the Extinction Rebellion. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you, Rupert. Allison, 
Um, yeah. Uh, we also, um, there's been a lot of attention to uh, schools going on, cl- on climate strikes. You know, uh, mm. Greta Thunberg started this in Sweden. And, and um, how does Extinction uh, Rebellion play into that kind of effort? Yeah, so, I mean, Greta has been unbelievable. She has inspired people. She's captured the imagination. She spoke at the COP recently. She was at Davos. You know, she is a, you know, people see her in many different ways. You know, she's inspirational. She's a beacon. She she sort of, in some way, she encapsulates everything that we are trying to do. And she's, and she's a young woman of 16 who has determinedly, single-mindedly, just just take, she's just literally taken on all of the corporations and all of the, the governments. Um, and she's inspired huge numbers of children. Within the, within the UK and globally, there are plans for a um, school uh, climate strike. And in the UK, this is taking place on February the 15th. And so school children are standing up. And and they're telling us that they have been inspired by by us at Extinction Rebellion, and they've they've seen that you know we have we have simply gone out there in London and we have occupied a bridge and the school children, and it's their you know their futures are at stake, and school children have become inspired by this, um, and they are starting to realise that their futures are, I mean compromise is too weak a word. Their futures are being absolutely trashed by the behaviour uh, and the, the behaviours of ancestors, I suppose, their forebears. Um, and so what we, what we are doing to the planet is, is planetary abuse. You know, we are, we are, we are humanity is abusing the planet. And, and one of the points I'm making, which is quite contentious, is that planetary abuse equates to child abuse. You know, what we are doing is robbing our children of their futures. Um, we are bequeathing to them a future that they simply do not deserve and we should be profoundly ashamed of ourselves for doing that and i am i am inspired by and proud of all of those children who are prepared to to get up and 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 say you know i'm i'm going to go on school climate strike i'm going to be like greta i think they're doing an incredibly brave thing shall we see some uh, action maybe in february on a local level Yep, so in the UK, February the 15th, school children are taking action. Um, there's been quite a lot of talk about the action that school children have taken in Australia recently. So there been um, there was a letter, again, and, and academics, academics in Australia wrote a letter in support of the, um, the Australian children's school strike, and that appeared in The Guardian. And that was wonderful to see academics supporting... Um, school children in Australia. We're hoping that the same thing will happen here in the UK. There will be on March the 15th an international school strike where children, where children will be um, hopefully, you know, just just rising up and coming out and saying, you know what, I'm I'm going to I'm going to stand with with Greta, with everyone who wants to protect the planet, with everyone who wants to take action and and you know, and protect the future of our children. Allison, thank you. We've run out of time, so I have to cut you off right there. Thank you very much for spending the time to explain um, all the good work that you're doing with the Extinction Rebellion. Thank you. You're all very welcome. And Isabel and Hunter, thanks for helping me out here. And uh, we're going to be back next week. We're going to talk about local initiatives here in Massachusetts to clean up the waters and work with municipalities with 
uh, reducing nitrogen pollution big time, like 80 to 100% from uh, established lawns. And all you listeners, thank you for listening this week. Please tune in next week. Uh, and, uh, and just take care and take care of yourselves. And then try to take a moment to take care of this planet Earth of ours. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.